0: Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Basketball Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined, as always, by Hummer. Hummer, it's Xavier Week. How's it going, buddy?
1: Well, guys, I've heard from multiple sources that you could potentially be an issue if I say what I want to say, I'm being advised to use the word fantastic, but it's a great day to be a Cincinnati Bearcat basketball fan.
0: Indeed it is. Saturday night, the Bearcats finally played basketball again, Hummer, after a much-needed layoff, after an incredibly dramatic and exhausting and draining Paradise Jam, and the Bearcats bounced back Uh, We'll say strongly with a victory against the UNLV running rebels. The final score of that game, Hummer, do you happen to have that in front of you?
1: The final score, 72, 65 with overtime. The cats pull it out. UNLV.
0: Our third consecutive overtime game, a run in which I hope we do not ever match again. Um, the Bearcats struggled in the first half of this game. They went down 33-24 to 24 at halftime. And I imagine most Bearcat fans were going to a deep, dark place after that first half because, again, we came out flat on the offensive end. We're just not seeing the dynamic-type offense that we probably expected with John Brandon. And I think what we're starting to realize is it's, it's personnel-driven. You can have an offense that's based on movement – that generates open looks for players. But at the end of the day, if you don't have the players that are needed to execute that type of offense, and in this case, where I think we're primarily lacking, is with shooting, and we'll get to that. But in addition to that, we also defensively, it just didn't seem like we were clicking on all cylinders. And so at that point, I'm starting to think, geez, is this team just straight-up regressing? Is this becoming a bigger problem, uh, you know, bigger than this one game, than this, than this, uh, than this bad stretch of basketball? And the good news is the Bearcats came out in the second half and just dominated defensively. They responded to our inability to score the ball by absolutely shutting down UNLV on the defensive side. Uh, I think they went about 17 minutes into the second half, scoring only 11 points. And then we had the dramatic close of the game where the Bearcats blew a 10-point lead in the final minute and 10 seconds of that game. Definitely some misfortune and definitely some bad officiating. Um... UNLV's leading scorer for that game, shot a three-pointer and was fouled. I'm sorry, he shot a two-pointer and was fouled by Micah Adams-Woods. However, they ruled it a three-pointer on the floor and failed to go to the monitors to review the play. One of the few plays where I just am dumbfounded by the pure embarrassment that is TV Teddy, uh, who was one of the lead officials in that game. I'm just... (laughs) It was maddening watching that that moment in particular, knowing that it would probably come back to bite us, which it did. But the Bearcats closed the game out, ended up winning by seven. Hammer, did you have a chance to watch this game? And if, if so, what were your thoughts on the Bearcats' performance?
1: So as you guys have heard in the past, I was I was in St. Thomas uh, with the Paradise Jam. I am back in Philly. I did not get back to the states, uh, the mainland, as they called it down there, Uh, Until last night. So I actually had the pleasure of listening to Dan Horde and um, Kevin Johnson uh, call the game. But that being said, Kevin Johnson, he's actually, I love the chemistry between those two on the call. I think they do a fantastic job with one another. And he, he brought up a really good point at the second half. He just kept repeating the phrase, you need to keep the ball in front of your chest on the defensive side of the ball. He kept repeating it. He kept repeating it. He also kept repeating that our depth is a lot deeper than UNLV, that all we need to do is wear them out, wear them out, wear them out. Uh, you know, we're, you're talking about some of their players. I think one of the guys you're ta- you're referring to is uh, Elijah Mitchell Long. He, he sounded like he was just uh, an absolute force to be reckoned with. I think he's, you scored uh 20 plus points in that particular game. Yeah, yeah. He, he uh,
0: finished with 29 and he was not not shy about trolling the crowd which on the road in Cincinnati at a, on a stage like that, it was impressive. He he caught fire, was burying three pointer after three pointer and we found out toward the end of the game that he was actually considering in his final three, he's a grad transfer considered coming to the University of Cincinnati and that would have been a nice get.
1: Yeah, he made the wrong decision clearly. Uh as you'll find out as he goes on through his basketball career, or any grad transfer out there for that matter, who is considering the University of Cincinnati. Uh, this is definitely the place you want to come to play over the majority of programs out there. That is not my biased opinion. That is my humble opinion. No, it's just fact.
0: That's just pure <laughs> fact. So if you're a grad pure transfer, fact. considering whatever schools, doesn't matter. The University of Cincinnati is your best option. There were There were a lot of positives to take overall in this game. This was the second consecutive game, Hummer, where Micah Adams-Woods became a driving force, leading us to victory. Like, one of the main reasons that we're winning this game was the performance of Micah Adams-Woods. He kept us in the game in the first half, scoring a, uh, I think what was a total of eight points, two of, six of which came from two three-point shots. But he's just incredibly gifted offensively with his dribble. Like, the, the way in which he changes pace, He goes fast. He's able to slow down strategically in a way that keeps defenders off balance. And then where he really shined this game, especially in the second half was defensively. He's, he can disrupt opposing guards with how long he is. I know we've talked about and heard about his incredible wingspan. It was showing and it was, it was in full effect on the defensive side of the ball in terms of keeping players in front of him. And even when they do get a step on him, he can recover incredibly quickly because of that reach and when there was a play, another quite poor call during the game where he actually blocked a, a layup straight up, met him, at the, met him at the peak, and bad foul call, but it was just one of those flashes where you say Micah Adams-Woods is going to be an incredibly special player for the Bearcats, not just this season. This season it's happening sooner than we thought, but long-term, this is going to be one of those guys that we remember for a long time as Bearcat fans.
1: So it's funny, we you know we've I think we've done an episode where we talk about where we don't really want to get into the foul calls and and whatnot, but these two were just so egregious, and even Dan Hort at the beginning of the broadcast goes, and we got Teddy Valentine, not known as one of the better college basketball officials, calling the game tonight. Uh, we'll see how that turns out, <laughs> and then later on in the game with the the three point call. Uh, Horde was, was definitely going a little nuts, but that that block, wow. Was he just, he was just livid, and his description of that was just, I could picture it in my mind exactly what happened and when I saw the replay. When
0: you talk about Micah Adams-Woods, I think on the other side of the coin, you have to talk about Chris McNeil, because Chris McNeil, he's the one losing the minutes to Micah Adams-Woods, and in my opinion, based on play, it's completely justified. It's tough to watch him struggle the way he is right now.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you're looking at this. If you went not talk about the struggle of McNeil, uh, zero points. I think is this, let's just double check here, but I think that might be two games in a row that he has failed to score. Well, Chris McNeil, sorry, it's not two in a row. He did have seven. He had seven against Valpo. So sorry. Uh, but, but- either way he failed to score he 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 failed to really play as you mentioned he only played 13 minutes
0: ah, well we've been calling we've been calling for John Brannon to change his minute distribution for Chris McNeil and Micah Adams Woods it was you know heavily skewed in Chris McNeil's favor and even if he was the clear-cut starter for that role it doesn't necessarily make sense is he good enough to justify high 30 minutes or mi- or 35 minutes a game absolutely not um,
1: but it's, well, it's, I think the answer is clear. If you're looking at this result, he only played 13 Right. and Mike Mika Adams, Mike, sorry, Micah Adams, Woods Ma, but he played 29 minutes. Uh, you know, so definitely his minutes are going up, but Brandon has said this repeatedly throughout the year. And if we're starting to learn anything, I do think Brandon does try to keep a level of consistency. He said, if you play defense as a freshman, You're going to get into the game. Stop worrying about offense. The offense will come. And, you know, maybe this is a sign of the team as a whole that the philosophy may be coming around because a guy like Mika Adams Woods is picking up on that. That if you play defense, don't worry. The offense will come. And so maybe we maybe we can see a a progression in the in the right in the right direction going forward. I think we're starting to see, as you you mentioned before, some regression here. But if guys like them, like these freshmen are going to really pick up and buy into this system, there's definitely no no reason why the other guys can't gravitate towards that as well. And then maybe we can see an uptick in the offense as we progress.
0: In this game, Micah shot four of six from the field, two of four from three. I don't think he's going to hold those percentages long-term. It's a very small sample size. but And he didn't turn the ball over. He had one turnover in this game. So building in some regression into his game, it's likely that he's going to have some slip-ups. There's going to be some growing pains in terms of turnovers, in terms of bad fouls. We saw that at the end of the game, certainly. Um, it's not going to be perfect. But what what I think we're seeing is, for the Bearcats to come close to reaching the ceiling we expected before the season, I don't think we can actually reach that ceiling if Chris McNeil is our starting point guard. That's no—it's just—it's not meant to be overly harsh, but Chris McNeil, his lack of shooting and the lack of confidence he has on the court right now, it 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 completely stymies any offensive success you can have. You can't have Chris McNeil, Trey Scott, Chris Vote, and Keith Williams getting major minutes together all as basically non-shooters on the court. So in order to stretch, in order to change that balance and change that dynamic, you have to see more minutes from not only Javon Cumberland at the guard spot, but also Micah Adams woods really impressed with what he's giving us so far this season, but you made a great point. We need to talk about Keith Williams, Incre- awesome defensive performance from Keith Williams down the stretch and overtime. He contested two jump shots, uh, from the that leading scorer on UNLV, uh, Hardy, and held him to four of twenty four shooting overall in that game. He was the leading scorer for them coming in. Outstanding performance from Keith.
1: Keith Williams deserves a standing ovation for that performance. You know, he he still he was the second highest scorer on the team. He was the the third put three of four in double digits, but his performance. Maybe if you want to you know, be outshined by the big name and Jaron Cumberland, you know, the big boy on the block here, scoring 20, I think Keith Williams was the most important person on the court against UNLV. That second-half surge of defense that he brought and then the offense that he was able to carry along with it, without that energy in his leadership in, that, in this particular game, we do not come out victorious.
0: He was, he was the spark plug that ignited our, our run in the second half. Defensively, he was all over the place. His athleticism jumps off the screen on the defensive side of the ball. And offensively, what I noticed during that run, his defense bred confidence on the offensive end because sometimes Keith Williams, you can tell, gets in his own head. He takes a little bit too long to make a decision on offense. He'll pump fake. He'll, he'll ball fake. But during that run, there was no hesitation on anything Keith Williams was doing. He's crashing the boards hard. He's letting his athleticism shine on the offensive boards. W- hitting that three-pointer, it was a quick jab stack step, and then an easy release from three, buried it. If Keith Williams can find a way to channel that decisive decision-making, that's where he's at his best offensively. His, it's when he's in attack mode. It's when he's hitting the offensive glass. It's when he's making those athletic, crowd-pleasing plays uh, for the Cincinnati Bearcats.
1: Coomer, since we're talking about studs for the Cincinnati Bearcats, I know you love Keith Williams. I love Keith Williams, but you know I talk about Trey Scott as as being one of my keys at the beginning of the season that we're going to need uh, in order for this team to be successful. Uh, I think it's a great time to update our listeners on the Beer Mile Challenge that we have Um, As of right now, it's not looking good for me. We have... Go figure. Yeah, go figure. We have Keith Williams shooting phenomenal, uh, having big games coming out, increasing his points per game to uh, 11.3 year-to-date, and with my Trey Scott actually regressing, coming in at 8.9. Trey, if you happen to listen, that's a motivation for you.
0: (laughs) I think, we act, I think that's motivation for him to continue his current trajectory because we all want to see you have to complete a beer mile and post it for us all to enjoy. I can't imagine the unintentional comedy we'll get from that, that performance. So, honestly, it's Fair not very really surprising. I personally expected Trey Scott to be involved more in the offense. He doesn't seem to have a clear role. Uh, in terms I, I of scoring the ball, well, in terms of scoring the ball, terms scoring the ball, yes, they're his not role, relying on his him. Rebounder, yeah, he's re- that's his role. He's rebounding, rebounding exceptionally is... well. It's been yeah. his rebounding numbers have been wild. Um, he's hitting he's hitting the glass strong, but all, you know, we're not we're not leaning on that mid range jumper. It hasn't been all that reliable, and it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like the three point shot must have translated in terms of all the off season work he put into it because it's not something they're featuring in the games, and I think if you had Trey Scott with the ability to knock down an outside three-point shot consistently, it would open up the floor dramatically. So it's disappointing that Trey's not able to be more involved from a scoring standpoint. Nonetheless, it doesn't stop him from having a a huge impact on the game. His rebounding, like you said, is, is huge for us, especially for a team that can't rebound the ball very well overall. If we didn't have Trey Scott doing what he was doing on the boards, it would be a disaster, but he also is the same player who made two critical passes down the stretch to Chris vote for dunks. He's finding ways to impact the game offensively and defensively, even if it doesn't necessarily come from scoring the ball.
1: Yeah. You said it. Perfect. Uh, you know, Trey Scott's role on this team at the moment does not appear to be, uh, centered around scoring it's defense it's rebounding it's being a big presence it's creating shots for others uh that's that seems to be more of his role uh which is opposite where i thought they were going to take this looking at the way he ended last year where he was kind of that go-to he brings an energy to the team that he's able to come out there and get things done when it needs to be done so, but either way, it's still a good look for him because we need that. We need that more than anything else on this team right now with, with, uh, basically our only big man that we have is, is Sorola, or sorry, vote at the moment. Sorola is injured. Mama do Diara has not been, he, he's been lackluster for, for the lack of a better, better word has not been very good. Uh, you know, I think we were hoping to see more out of him this year and we're just, we're just not. So, you know, Trey, Trey Scott's playing into a role player.
0: Yeah. His development is not taking off the way you would have hoped as a third year player for the Bearcats. Obviously he's a, he's a red shirt sophomore, but given that the the amount of time he's been at the program, if he was going to take a leap, you would think this would be the year that happened. And I think John Brannon has said it in post-game press conferences that after six, seven games into the season, he has a, a good feel for what he's going to get out of players. And I think we're seeing I a, a, – a, I'm going to say a starting lineup at this point um, of Jaron Cumberland, Keith Williams, Trey Scott, Chris Vogt. Those are your four key starters. And in terms of what he does with that point guard spot, we might see Chris McNeil start a few more games. I expect that that Micah Adams-Woods is the answer long-term. He's going to be the guy who gets most of the minutes, even if he is technically coming off the bench. And then from the bench standpoint, Javen Cumberland's going to be the driving force. Once the role is healthy, he's going to be our main uh, big man option off the bench. And I think you have to keep playing Zach Harvey and and, uh, Jeremiah Davenport. They're not shining at all moments of every game but each of them has shown flashes of being able to contribute both offensively and defensively, and I love the athleticism and size they both bring to the table. But the odd men out in terms of lineups, Trevor Moore, Mamadou Diara, they look overmatched when they enter games. Our offense and defense appear to regress when they're out there. Trevor Moore just doesn't seem to have the confidence necessary to be an actual threat from three-point range. Obviously, he was recruited and touted as a shooter, we hear about great shooting numbers during practice. It just does not translate to games. In Mamadou Diara's case, he is slow on rotations, and the athleticism that he, that he possesses does not pop and impact the game in a way that you would expect. But there's one player we have yet to talk about, and it's actually refreshing because he's been the only thing people have talked about as Bearcat fans for the last week or two. Jaron Cumberland played a played a normal amount of minutes, there were no health concerns in this game, and his usage was back up.
1: He was, he was Jaron. In other words, he was Jaron. And it's what we expect. He scored, what, 20, he had 20 points in the game. He was the leader for the Cats. Uh, all around, put out a great effort. Uh, you know, made some big shots down the stretch. W- what more can you say? Like you said, it's, when you don't have to talk about Jaron, it's good.
0: For sure, and I I want to make sure we're we're showing proper respect to Jaron that the level he reached in the UNLV game is not his peak. He he's working through the physical fitness stamp, um, physical fitness things, and once he got in, the, he was much more aggressive getting into the lane. He's actually been very aggressive overall this season. He's getting a lot of free throw attempts. A, he's not knocking down free throws at a high enough clip yet. But B, his creativity in the lane needs to be tightened up a bit. I think with a little bit better footwork, introducing a, a little bit more of a consistent floater, he could be more effective because his athleticism doesn't pop at the rim. So when he takes it in there, there it seems like opposing teams are able to contest him pretty well and pretty consistently. He seems to be tr- doing his best to mix in that floater, and I love it. Um, but once we get Jaron honed in and locked in, this team, that he is the answer for taking us to that next level when you mix in some of the role players. um increasing their performance the way they have.
1: Uh, It's an interesting point you just brought up, and I know Jaron's not the the culprit or the only culprit. I know we also have a big outlier when it comes to this particular statistic, Uh, but it, it seems to be a trend over the last few games that teams are starting to foul us heavily and early when it comes to the end of the second half. They're not waiting for the two minutes. They're starting to foul us with... Three and a half, three, three and a half minutes left on the clock. Right now, as a team, we're shooting 64.3%. This is getting really into the weeds, but that's number 296th in the nation. Teams right now are going to come and say to the Cats, if it beat us with the foul line. That's what they're going to tell us. When we're getting into these close games, I think we're going to see a lot of teams going after that. But one of the things that was great seeing in this particular game at UNLV is Brandon did start. I think you're right. He's getting a feel for his players because he was taking guys out and bringing guys in solely for the purpose of foul shooting. I think he could have
0: done a better job at it, though. You know, I think he could have getting, getting McNeil but he off actually the court, did it. Uh, no, yeah. getting McNeil on, off the court is not obvious, right? He's not a closer at this point based on his liability at the free throw line. But there were moments where we're letting Jaron Cumberland be the uh, the guy taking these fouls at the end of the game. Javen Cumberland needs to be subbed in for these offense-defense situations where he's the one taking these foul shots because he is going to be the most reliable free throw shooter we have on the team. Obviously, Jaron should be better than he was during against UNLV but Brandon could do better at making sure Javen is in the game on these critical offensive possessions where the other team's just going to foul you because he should be option number 1 at the free throw line.
1: But no, I mean, that's something I think we need they need to be they're going to be mindful of going into the future knowing that teams right now are seeing us as not a very good free throw shooting team. They've seen us now basically almost lose Three games in a row. We've we've won two of those games, thankfully, but easily could have gone the other way uh, because we shot we shot poorly from the foul the fra- the foul line. So definitely gonna have to see an improvement with being able to close out games. That is a big worry. But overall, you know, if Brandon is is talking, he's saying the right things. He's, I think he's starting to recognize where he, what he has in his team, and what we need to move forward. Defense needs to be a priority. We have guys that can play defense. I don't think we're worried about that aspect of it. And then hopefully, moving forward, we'll see good defense. You mentioned this earlier, translating offense, translating into offensive confidence on, on the other on the end of the court. So that's that's what I'm hoping moving forward. Uh, what are what are your hopes? Is that well, the, Am might missing something. The competition we've
0: played the last three games in particular, Bowling Green. Uh, Bowling Green, Valparaiso, and now UNLV, it's obviously not the toughest competition that you're going to see across the NCAA, and it's not the toughest competition we're going to see on our schedule. But it is important to note, these are not bottom 100 or bottom 50 teams in the NCAA. They're not cupcakes. They can beat you on any given night, and they do present interesting challenges for the team. So the fact that we have been able to build decent leads against all three of these teams we had a 10-point lead late against Bowling Green. We obviously had the same against Valparaiso, and we had a 10-point lead against UNLV. Not massive leads, not dominating performances, but none of them were games that we should have lost, and none of them were games that should have gone to overtime. So the silver lining to me is the Bearcats are showing improvement defensively. They are showing the ability to, to get a lead against solid teams. Now the challenge is... How do we put lineups out there that are able to effectively close games? I think we're starting to show signs that John Brandon is getting a better feel for the team, and we have the players. We have the players on this roster to do this. It doesn't have to be a uh, woe is us situation. We're able to close these games. We're able to win these games, and I expect to do so going forward.
1: And let's let's end on a positive note when we're talking about the recap of the last the last week. If we're going by my projections of what my uh, uh, projection for our record was, we're still on pace. I had actually picked us to lose to Nevada in the finals of the Paradise Jam, just not the Bowling Green in the game before. But ultimately, uh, you hit the nail on the head there. They're not cupcakes. But then moving forward, our schedule is loaded coming up here. We have Vermont... Coming up on Tuesday. And then we have a Little Brother from Norwood. They have packed Fifth Third Arena to the brim for the Crosstown Shootout. Three miles, two teams, one city. Cumberland has owned
2: the last minute. Three to shoot, Cumberland. Yes, I mean. Jennifer, no luck for the slam
1: in it
2: up. Cumberland rolls it in. Xavier had owned the series recently. That has
0: changed the Queen City of Ohio. The crosstown shootout is back. And to honor the occasion, Hummer, a reading from the Book of Sam.
2: What if I told you that the most important basketball game of the year in our city barely registers a blip on the national radar? that even though it's circled on the Queen City's collective calendar every year, the rest of the country couldn't care less. What if I told you that they might be onto to something? The Crosstown Shootout returns for its 87th iteration Saturday, and as long as there isn't a repeat of 2011's infamous Crosstown Punchout, the game and its result will be almost immediately forgotten. Recapped and remembered on devoted podcasts, given its due on the night's local news, sure, but otherwise quickly swept under the proverbial rug and out of the sports news cycle. Do the schools even care about the Crosstown shootout anymore? Their scheduling of the game shows either a surprising lack of interest or a startling lack of awareness. Now, Xavier doesn't have a football team, So maybe they can be forgiven for not realizing that they and UC scheduled the shootout for smack dab in the heart of college football's conference championship weekend. The game's television partner, this year FS1, while a fine network who I'm sure will deliver a quality production, isn't doing much to combat my assertion that this shootout is a niche product only of interest to those inside the 275 loop. Tip-off Saturday is set for 5 p.m. And I, for one, can't remember the last time the Crosstown Shootout was given a primetime billing. This game seems forever destined to live in an uninspiring mid-to-late-afternoon time slot, playing second fiddle and opening act to the sporting events of the day that actually matter on a national stage. Do you know what FS1 is airing in primetime Saturday after the Crosstown Shootout? As of this recording... The station is scheduled to show a fucking rerun of WWE Friday Smackdown. That wrestling reruns are given a better time slot than the Crosstown Shootout may be the ultimate sign that this game truly does not matter. Sure, it matters to you, me, and to the college basketball fans of our city. This week, we'll see trash talk fly and debates rage on subjects ranging from historical significance and conference strength of schedules, to which campus features a better education and the hotter girls. We'll all tune in Saturday, and maybe a few curious onlookers from outside Greater Cincinnati will too. We'll watch the cliché commercial bumpers of chili poured over hot dogs, and the fast-forwarded video of the four-mile drive from Fifth Third Arena to the Centos Center. And one team's fan base will earn bragging rights but then we'll all move on. We'll remember we don't have to pay any more attention to that little brother in Norwood, and our lives will be all the better for it. Because here's what the schools and the cable stations have apparently already figured out. This game doesn't matter. There are zero league title implications, no tournament fates on the line, or anything else of basketball importance besides those valuable bragging rights. And for as long as I can remember, I swear at least half the time the better team hasn't won the shootout anyway. I suppose that's the sign of a true rivalry, that records and such can be thrown out the window when these two get together, or it's just further proof that this game doesn't matter and the non-Cincy native players involved can't be bothered to give it any more meaning than any other non-conference tilt just because the fans deem it a big deal. What if I told you, all of them, The schools, the players, the media, and the college basketball fans everywhere except for Cincinnati, Ohio, they have the right idea. They have the right idea, and the crosstown shootout ultimately doesn't matter because Big Brothers can't be bothered with whatever cute little hijinks little brother in Norwood is up to. By the time Xavier made its first back to back NCAA tournament appearances, the University of Cincinnati was celebrating the 25-year anniversary of its back-to-back national championships. The Xavier fans love to flaunt the series' recent history, as if winning four of the past six or eight of the past 12 shootouts matters for anything. If the Musketeers would like to hang a banner in the Cintas Center celebrating their Crosstown shootout so-called success, Just make sure it mentions their 40% winning percentage in the series overall. Maybe hang that one right next to the program's non-existent collection of national championship banners, or let alone a Final Four. Those were the majestic words
0: spoken by none other than the former sports editor of the news record, Samuel Elliott. We're now fortunate enough to be joined by Sam Elliott on the line. Sam, since this game doesn't matter, what are you most interested in for Saturday's matchup against Xavier?
2: I am looking forward to seeing some new coaches in this matchup. And We had, we all remember the Huggins versus Gillen era Dramatics, but then we had Cronin and Mac who were best of buddies and tried to downplay the entire thing and now we bring John Brandon into the fold and new guy I have no idea how he feels about this this rivalry so interesting to see interested to see how how he how he handles his first shootout in enemy territory no less
0: i can't think of anything more captivating than wondering about the two middle-aged white guys wandering around on the sidelines during an interesting captivating, enthralling basketball game. So thank you for that. And on that note, Sam, we're going to let you go. Thank you again for your soothing, melodic, beautiful words of wisdom about the Xavier-UC rivalry. Hummer, let's move on to some analysis about this matchup, given that Sam does find it to be somewhat obsolete after the game is played. Right now, Cincinnati leads the series 47-32, to However, Xavier has won twelve of the nineteen matchups in this millennium. UC has actually not won on Xavier's home court since two thousand one, which is when Steve Logan was leading the Bearcats. What do you like? What do you like about Cincinnati's odds going into this game on Saturday?
1: Wow, well, the stat about being in a away game is not a great one. If UC wants to take this one away from Xavier, you know one of the biggest factors I think we're looking at is our trio of experienced players that hit the court night in and night out. You know, Jaren Cumberland's going to have to show up, if not take over the game. You know, we've talked about in the past games that you just name after a player. Is it the Jaron Cumberland game? Is it the the Keith Williams game? Is it going to be the Trey Scott game? We're going to need contributions and major ones from all of those those major players. And I'm going to kind of bundle that in as to one key thing that they're going to have to do. Uh, Another thing I'm looking forward to is and and Sam. I can't believe this was also the most important thing he was looking at at this matchup, Uh, but we have another, I don't want to call him a freshman, but new to the rivalry or at least new to being in this rivalry. And that's how coach John Brannon is actually going to react to this environment, to this atmosphere. Because to date, he hasn't played a game or coached a game as a D1 head coach in an environment like he's going to see next Saturday night.
0: Yeah, with all the roster turnovers Cincinnati has seen this season, including our coach, in some ways it makes me a little bit nervous because I think this rivalry tends to favor those with the most experience. Um, Typically and historically, freshmen have not thrived in this setting. So with Micah Adams-Woods seemingly taking over the primary ball-handler position for this team, it's tough to to expect that we can rely on him consistently in this type of environment. It doesn't necessarily bring the best out of players when it's their first year in this rivalry. Coach-wise, yeah, I certainly hope John Brandon's got his head on straight and has, has a good feel for the rotations because that's going to need to be dialed in for this matchup for, for us to overcome some of the talent deficiencies that we're going to see going up against Xavier. His rotations are going to have to be on point. From my perspective, you mentioned the returning players. I do think the the role Chris Vote in particular is going to play in this matchup is huge. We don't have any depth behind him. It's it's a Trey Scott, Chris Vogt world. And after that, right, right now with Sorolla out, we're looking at Mamadou Diara playing that key backup role, and he's not going to be able to hang in there with the bigs of Xavier. And so finding a way to keep him on the court and, and for him to stay out of foul trouble is going to be paramount. And if he does find himself in foul trouble, well, that's where, that's where John Brandon needs to go full Bob Huggins. Pull Mamadou Diara by the shirt just as, the same way Huggins did Hicks however many years ago. Scream at his face and let him know that this is your moment, buddy. This is the moment to get in that game. Be tough. Grab boards, but most importantly, if Mamadou Diara has to see serious minutes in this game, take advantage of the fact that Xavier's not going to defend him closely at all. We know we can hit that three-point shot, and if we're in a situation where we're desperate for points and desperate for productivity, this could be the Mamadou Diara, Mamadou Diara game. This could be the game that he lets it fly from three, and we actually see him positively impact the game from three-point land. However, if we get to that point, Odds are we're we're not in a good spot for winning this game.
1: Unleash the beast. No, I think that that's one of the the biggest key. If I had to highlight what the cats need to do is, one, Chris Vote needs to stay out of foul trouble. That is that is the biggest issue of what we are going to see, is is if Xavier is able to attack, use their home crowd, get a guy like Chris Vote rattled, get him into making. Making stupid fouls, get in trouble early, and where there is a point in time where we do have to see Mama do on the court for a long extended period of time, that that to me is actually the single biggest scary, the scariest nightmare that could potentially happen um, in order for this game to really get away from us early. So Chris Vogt staying on the court is, is going to be in paramount. But let's let's you know let's play that worst case scenario. If he does go out, Mama Duke does come in. I'm wondering if we're going to see some – I guess it's also where is John Brandon's mindset with this game? It is November. Yes, it is a good opponent. Is it something that he's just like, well, we got to win this? Is it imperative for me to win this? From a fan base perspective, we say absolutely. But it's maybe not a game where he's going to start to experiment radically, even though we might like to see him maybe run some other sets off there that aren't centered around Mamadou Diara uh, with with other players playing other roles uh you know trey scott with his athleticism i think is big and he's only an inch shorter than mama do it's not like he he can't exactly play the role of big he's already down in there doing the rebounding uh you know his rebounding thing so you know that'd be interesting to see if that can happen but like you said the biggest takeaway is that we're going to need to win this game is chris vote staying out of foul trouble and we're going to need the player game another yeah. player game for those three guys we're going to need
0: a surprise performance and it's funny to hear us talk so much about the doomsday scenario essentially because in in all in all reality mamadou diara is not going to play a major role in a victory for the cincinnati bearcats but it is fun to think if that likely outcome it doesn't seem unlikely let's say that chris vote gets into foul trouble and that's why i think we're talking about this is that it does seem realistic that if he gets in foul trouble all of a sudden our big man depth our front court depth is tested How do we respond to that? And that's one of the ways in which we could do it. Now, if we have Chris Voden, the best players on the court for Cincinnati, on the court for a majority of this game, this could be a situation for Javen Cumberland to have his first major impact on the Cincinnati Bearcats and have that game where he just can't miss and everything's going in. We find a way to get him looks. Having Javen Cumberland light up the scoreboard is a way for us to have one of those, the Javen Cumberland game because um, we're going to need someone to help su- supplement the production that Jaron Cumberland's going to get, that Keith Williams is going to give us, that Chris Vogt's going to give us. Those are the most consistent players on the year. Where's our sixth man in this game? We're going to need production from somewhere else, and it's it's interesting to think about where it might come from at this point.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the Javen, uh, the, the Javen thing as well, because if I'm looking back at past shootouts or just sometimes past games that you just don't want to lose, it always seems that the other team cannot miss from beyond the arc. And I want uh, that to be us this year. I want to just frustrate them because guys are making their shots. We haven't had a game like that since Thomas Moore. Granted, like we've mentioned before, there's a reason why it happened in Thomas Moore, but we haven't had a game where guys just hit their open shots. We're not shooting well as a team early on. And maybe this shift that Brandon's talked about moving from, you know, realizing that we're not a team of shooters that we're going to have to play more defense. So maybe going that defensive route first can bring more confidence on the, on the offensive side of the game, leading to more, more open shots, making the more shots being made. And I would just love to see Javen with that beautiful, beautiful form just raining down doom <laughs> on Xavier.
0: One can only hope. As going into the game, Xavier's likely going to be 8-1. and one. They'll have wins against Missouri and UConn. Their only loss will have come against Florida. Now, if you look at their schedule results, I don't find them to be overly impressive. They do grade out really well defensively. They have the 16th-ranked defensive efficiency in the country and they're holding teams to only 28% three-point shooting. They have had their own offensive struggles, though. They've only shot 28% from the three-point line on the season, and they're shooting 66% from the free-throw line, which goes to show you this game is not going to be beautiful offensively. Um, In all likelihood, it's going to be a battle of of defense. This is a game that could easily end up in the 50s or 60s. I don't necessarily expect the most beautiful performance, but if Cincinnati's ever going to have a game when when the, when everything goes into place offensively, it would be great to see it happen now. And that's probably, we're going to need some special performances from from some of the Bearcats in order to pull off the upset. But I think it's very much possible when you consider how Xavier has struggled on the offensive side of the ball this season.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's a very good point. But the other thing I think we're missing out on here too is um, this might be Xavier week, but we do have... Another game in between now and Xavier, and not only that, a team that is a potential NCAA tournament team that that is on our schedule, and that is Vermont. Uh, so that's, and I think that's actually a really good thing that we're going to be playing a tough team at home. We're going to be able to still work out further some of the kinks that we've had. Hopefully, this is a team. Listen, this is a good team that we're going to play, but we should beat them. This is a team we should beat.
0: Vermont's coming off a tough 65-52 loss to Yale. They're 6-3 and three on the season heading into this game against Cincinnati, but they are a great dress rehearsal for the Xavier game because Vermont's going to be incredibly disciplined on the defensive side of the ball. That's their their bread and butter. It's very similar to like a, a mid-major Virginia, and, ac- and actually they tested Virginia early in the season. And so while it's a game that Cincinnati should definitely be favored in, we should definitely have – uh, we should definitely come out victorious. It, it's going to be a great run through for John Brannon in terms of, all right, let's even let's try and tighten these rotations up even more. Who are the minutes going to? Who's playing together the best? And having that opportunity is is a great thing before we go into the the environment that is the Cinta Center.
1: Yeah, because let's face it, we're getting into the fun part of our schedule now. We're, we're we have Vermont coming up. We have little brother from Norwood, Colgate. But then we come back with Tennessee and Iowa before we get into... We're actually going to start off a tough game with conference play with UConn. So we basically have this next four weeks of just incredibly tough basketball. It's really fun that we're getting into it. This is where we're, This is where the team is going to improve the most over the course of the season is this month. Because the, co- the competition is there. They're going to be challenged. And it's all about how they're going to rise to the occasion. And, you know, with... I Don't really like using those basketball or sports-related puns anyway, but it's so true. Right now, they have a chance to rise to the occasion against Vermont, and then follow that up with a road victory over Xavier, cement themselves with uh, with a, a a minor. We'll call it a minor win. We're not gonna call it a major win. <laughs> well, He's never major beating Xavier. <laughs>
0: You're right about the schedule. The competition is definitely going up a level this week, and in all honesty, when I think about it, this is exactly why we started the podcast. It's fun to talk about the matchups where you're not actually sure if you're going to win all the games, but it has not been the start we wanted and maybe we, we thought we would have when we talked about the John Brandon era, but it can all be made well. Like, all of this, we'll look past all of the early season struggles if they can find a way to start winning some of these big games against better teams, you don't worry about these these losses to Bowling Green or the struggles against Valparaiso if you start winning games against Xavier, against Tennessee, against Iowa and against conference competition. So big test coming up for the Bearcats. I hope they're up for it. I think we are going to be up for it when you look at some of the performances we got out of the second half of the UNLV game and I'm looking forward to watching, buddy. It's going to be it's going to be a good time. Absolutely. We've reached that point of the podcast, Hummer, where it's time to honor a Bearcat legend. I think it's my week to pick the player, and I think it's only fitting that we pick a player who last helped us defeat Xavier at Xavier back in 2001. The Bearcat legend we will be honoring today is none other than Emmanuel McElroy, who in 2001... During a 75-55 victory against the Xavier Musketeers at their home court, dropped 14 points and 9 rebounds. A key cog leading us to victory
1: against Xavier. We can do it this year.
0: We can shock the world. Ah, who are we kidding? It's not shocking the world. We expect No one cares. Are we lower ranked? Sure. But do we still expect to beat these clowns? Absolutely. Emmanuel McElroy, this week we're channeling your grit, your toughness, and your ability to defend the basketball. This game and this podcast and this upcoming victory against the Xavier Musketeers is for you. Cheers.